All right. If you want to grab a seat, and as you get kind of settled in, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 18 this morning. And while you do that, I just want to take a minute to explain the reasoning behind why we do something the way that we do it here. Um, and I want to do so with a story. Over the, some recent weeks, as in this Proverbs series, we've been having other people teach a little more frequently than is our normal. I've had the chance to worship uh, in our services just alongside you all, which has been wonderful. And uh, in the last few weeks, uh, one morning I stood next to uh, a young man who's been coming to our church for about six weeks or so. And I know a bit of his story and kind of where he is in life. And we were... we were singing uh, the song, The Goodness of God. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. Um, and his life circumstances right now are really, really difficult. And it's because of what someone else has brought into his life. A lot of pain, um, a lot of struggle. Uh, life has been very challenging for him. And I'm standing next to him, and we're singing, I will sing of the goodness of God. And he's just, he's weeping. And at the same time, still trying to kind of like choke the words out because he knows that they're true, even though in the moment it feels like life doesn't really feel that way. And so I'm standing next to him and I can, I can see and can kind of hear that that's what's happening next to me. And then I'm weeping like alongside him. Uh, And it was this powerful moment of worshiping together. Like we're corporately worshiping alongside one another, and it's very hard for him. And I tell that because often we get emails from people or someone will give us a suggestion that says, hey, maybe it would be good if we turned the lights down lower in worship. I would be able to enter in and connect a little bit better if we did that. And I want to explain why we don't. Uh, We don't do that because we come to church on Sunday mornings to worship corporately. And we we could turn the lights way down and it could feel very individual for you. And maybe you would be able to enter in and sing a little bit better and pretend that no one else is around you. But you can do that like in your kitchen. We come together and we worship corporately because sometimes as followers of Jesus, we arrive in the place like that young man that I was standing next to, and we need the body of Christ to literally kind of pick us up and carry us into worship, because on that day or in that season, I can't do it. It's very hard. It's very heavy. Or as brothers and sisters in Christ and as a family, we need to be able to come in to church and know about what's going on in another person's life and be encouraged because knowing their circumstances, I'm seeing them sing about the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. I mean, to hear him through tears doing that and to know that that's what was happening next to me, I can't even really describe how profoundly impactful it was for me. And so we leave the lights up a little bit. We want to be able to see one another in worship. That's what corporate worship is for. We can, we can play, you know, Christian music, and you can worship in various settings. But on Sunday mornings, we get the chance to come together and to do it as a body. And so we leave the lights up so that we can actually do that 
as a body. That's not to say that a church that pulls the lights down lower is doing something wrong. It's just to say that we cho- we've chosen here to do it that way because we believe that the corporate worship experience is important. And so there's a little kind of peek behind the curtain about why we do that the way we do and why if someone continue, people continue to ask us if we'll lower the lights down, we'll keep saying no. Um, so with that having been said, um, then as we enter into worship later, let it be a corporate experience. Enter in with the people around you and with this body and worship together before the Lord. That's, that's what this is supposed to be. So let's pray and then we'll jump into Proverbs. God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the chance to come and to sing, Lord, to lift our voices alongside one another and declare the truth of who you are, the, the greatness of who you are, to declare that we want to see you, Lord. We want to draw in intimately with you, God, to see your work in the world around us, to see your work in our lives. God, we want to see you made known to the ends of the earth. God, I pray that that would be a, that would be a collective act for us. God, that we would do that as a community alongside one another. Lord, I pray that the same would be true as we enter into your word, that, God, we want to hear from you individually, but we also want to see you work collectively in our body to shape us and mold us as a body of Christ into the image of Jesus that we carry with us out into the world. God, I pray that your spirit would move among us collectively. Your word tells us that when we gather, your spirit is present. And so, As we're together this morning, God, would you move and would you work? Would you convict and challenge and empower, support, encourage, whatever the case might be, God? And would we just be able as a body to celebrate and rejoice in the work that that uh, you're doing in and among us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as we've been working through uh, our series on Proverbs, we've, we've had a few moments where we've uh, hit certain relationships. Uh, we've talked about marriage, we've talked about family and parenting, and this morning we're going to talk about friendship. And the reason being that there are a lot of relationships in your life that you have no control over. You don't have control over who your siblings are, you don't have control over who your grandparents or uh, you know, your aunts and uncles are, you don't have control most of the time students over who your teachers are or who the principal of your building is, you don't have control over the kid that sits next to you in geometry. At work you might not have control over who your manager is or who your coworkers are or who that one guy is who insists on eating tuna at his cubicle desk every single day for lunch. We do have control over who our friends are. We make that decision daily. Each of us decides moment by moment, day by day, who we're going to surround ourselves with in friendship. And those friendships in turn have immense influence in our lives. Recognizing that, the Bible has a lot to say particularly Proverbs, about those friendships, about who those people should be and how those friendships should work. And so that's why we're going to take this particular topic in the course of this series. I want to give a special word, too, here before we start to the young people in our midst, uh, middle school, high school, even college students. In those seasons of life, maybe... Uh, it's most obvious the impact that friendships can have in terms of influencing us. 
It ends up influencing the situations that we find ourselves in, often in middle school, high school, college. It ends up influencing even the way that we talk and the things that we're interested in. And we get these close pictures of that when we're young. By the time we're adult, sometimes we're dealing with kind of rehabbing what's happened because of some poor friendships in the past or some poor relationships in the past. But as a young person, you can do some preventative work on the front end and save yourself a lot of pain by making wise friendship decisions before getting yourselves into the situations where those relationship choices have wreaked havoc in your life. And so if you're a young person here with us this morning, uh, maybe more, uh, not more so than ever, because I want you to pay attention every week, but I'm giving you a special encouragement to try to dial in for like the next 30 minutes. Uh, Here's what the world says about friendship. The world says that we should find friends that further our happiness. You just collect some people around you that make life a whole lot of fun. And that's a wonderful thing about friendship. That's not bad in and of itself, but that's not the end goal of friendship. In fact, our society says and our world says that once you've got some friends that further your happiness, when they stop doing that, just dispatch with the old ones and get yourself a new group that will help fulfill whatever image you have of happiness or contentment. The gospel says, God says in his word, that instead of happiness being the end goal, we should find friends that further our holiness. We're going to work our way through what I mean by that, and we're going to start in Proverbs 18, verse 24. In order to kind of make our way toward that end, I'm going to ask you, uh, after we look at Proverbs 18, 24, to give me like seven to ten minutes of theologically dense uh, material. The reason for that being is I think we need to understand where perfect friendship and relationship began in the Trinity and see how Jesus has brought us into that so that then we can understand what our friendships should look like in life. And so let's start with Proverbs 18.24. It says this, One with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. That is from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB translation, which is what I and most of our teachers teach out of uh, on a regular basis up here. Yours, you may be looking at that, particularly the first phrase of Proverbs 18.24 and saying to yourself, mine says something pretty different there. If you've got an NIV, it says one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. If you've got a New Living Translation, it says there are friends, and that's in quotes, Friends who destroy each other. The ESV says a man of many companions may come to ruin. The King James says a man that has friends must show himself friendly. The uh, contemporary English version says some friends don't help. The Good News Bible says some friendships do not last, which is uh, much to the chagrin of Michael W. Smith. Friends are friends forever. It's a song that made him famous. We had a good time with that for like an hour in the office earlier this week, and then it ended up in the sermon. What is going on here? What's happening in this verse that causes it to be translated so differently? Our translations always have subtle differences, uh, but this one has very broad changes depending on which translation you're using. Well, what's happening is that there are two words, uh, Hebrew words, used throughout the book of Proverbs that translate to friend. And this is one of the only Proverbs that uses both of those words in the same sentence. 
In the first half of the verse, Proverbs 18.24a, which is where most of the difference takes place in our translations, is very sparse in Hebrew. In fact, it's only three words. In my English translation, it's seven. It's three words in Hebrew. The first word being ish. That is what gets translated as one or man or person or individual. The second word is re'ah. That's the most common word for friend used in the book of Proverbs. It literally translates throughout the Old Testament to companion or fellow or neighbor, like that fellow over there. Or love your re'ah, your neighbor, as yourself. And then the third word in the first part of Proverbs 24 is the word ra'ah. There's a play on words there. Ish, re'ah, ra'ah. Ra'ah means to shatter. So when you read this in Hebrew, it says, one friends shatter. And a translator's got to do the work of figuring out exactly what that is supposed to mean. So they use the second half of the verse to try to give some context. The second half of the verse is much more clear, which is why pretty much all of our translations say, there's a friend who stays or sticks closer than a brother. What's going on there? In the second half of the verse, the word friend is the word ahev. Looks like oheb, but in Hebrew it's ahev. And it translates to one who loves. So, one friends shatter, but there is one who loves who is closer than a brother. That's Proverbs 18.24. So, translators have to do the hard work of trying to fill in the first half of that verse. What's important, the key here, is that there's something different about the friend in the second half of the verse than the friend in the first half. And you can have a lot of the companions, fellows, neighbors, and maybe not be any better off than if you had one ohev, friend who loves, one who loves. Maybe the first is a companion, that's the way it's sometimes translated. Maybe it's a bad friend or an acquaintance, a foolish friend or a wicked friend like Proverbs talks about. What matters is that there's something different about these two kinds of friends and the beneficial one is the second. The question is, how do we avoid the first and have the second? How do we foster friendships that are like the second half of the verse rather than like the first? This is where I'm going to ask you to kind of go with me for seven minutes here. We don't have enough time to do a deep dive into the theology of the Trinity. Instead, I'm going to let C.S. Lewis sort of frame this conversation. And the gist is this, that perfect relationship, perfect friendship has always existed eternally within the members of the Trinity. C.S. Lewis says it like this, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. And if God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. If there's no Trinity, perfectly, purely, unbrokenly loving within itself, then God cannot be love eternally. He became love when creation happened, but that's not true. God in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has always perfectly, sinlessly, unselfishly, purely loved. It's perfect relationship. We could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I say that in order to set this reality up. That thanks to Jesus, 
sinful human beings can be brought back into the perfection of that relationship. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, Romans says that we now exist in him, that we've been swept into the perfect relationship of the Trinity. We've got unbroken relationship with the Father thanks to the perfect, holy life, death, and resurrection of the Son, and we're sealed with the, with the Spirit for all of eternity. Think about how incredible that is. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but thanks to Jesus Christ, we can be brought back into that. And the perfect love that has existed for all of eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have been ushered back into that. It's amazing. To borrow from the image of C.S. Lewis, where he continues in this passage in Mere Christianity, he says, we've been ushered into the divine dance that has taken place among the Trinity for all of eternity. And we've been ushered in because Jesus made it possible. He even uses that language of love and of friendship in describing his relationship with us. This is from John 15. As the Father has loved me, and that's been perfect for all of eternity, Jesus says, I have also loved you. And this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. There's the picture. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect, pure, undefiled, unselfish, unbroken love. Jesus has now extended that to us as I have loved you. And then the command is, Jesus says, oh, it's just real simple. You love each other that way. He goes on. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. What began in heaven as an eternal, perfect relationship has been extended to sinful, broken humanity by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God has literally befriended us through Jesus, including us and in drawing us into the perfection of the relationship that he's always experienced within the Trinity. That is incredible. And so if we're to understand what friendship ought to look like, we have to start with Jesus. What does it look like for him to have made friendship with God possible? And then how do we model our friendships after what he has extended to us? In Jesus, we have the perfect picture of what it is to be a friend of sinners. And so I'm just going to walk through this. Over the course of the rest of the message, we're just going to build this little T-chart if you're a note taker. First and foremost, as the friend of sinners, Jesus knows the depth of our sin. The you that you don't want others to know, the you that you try to clean up in the parking lot before you make it in here to worship, the you that you put a mask on or that you try to behavior modify so that no one on the outside knows what's going on on the inside, that's the only you that Jesus really cares about. That's what he sees. That's what he knows. The, the outside masks and the pretending... He sees straight through that. He knows the depth of your sin, the deepest, darkest, most broken places that exist inside of you. That's what Jesus knows. Think John chapter four and the woman at the well. And after having that conversation, she runs into town and she declares with joy, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. That's the way Jesus knows you. And it's not just that he knows the depth of that sin. He actually sympathizes with our temptation. He not only knows 
you and the struggles that you have, he identifies with the very temptations that lead us into sin. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is taken out in the wilderness where he's tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He identifies with our temptation. And despite knowing the very depth of our sin and being able to sympathize with our temptation, yet remaining sinless himself, Jesus pursues us in our sin. In Luke chapter 15, there are three parallel parables. It's the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the prodigal son. A woman loses a coin, and she's turning the house upside down to find it. A shepherd loses one of his sheep, and he leaves the 99 behind to go and find the one. A man has two sons. One asks for all of his inheritance and goes off, and he squanders it in wild living. Another one stays at home, and the father welcomes home the prodigal. We tend to think of ourselves as maybe like a lost coin, but I'm a real shiny lost coin, like fresh off the mint that just got a little bit misplaced and Jesus just has to kind of lift up the corner of the bed skirt to find me right there. Or we think of ourselves as, yeah, I'm a lost sheep, but it was really kind of the herd's fault. Like the flock left me behind. I just wasn't ready to go yet, but I'm in good health and everything's fine. Or we think of ourselves as the older brother who stayed back, but maybe has some rough edges that need to be smoothed out. Or if we're the younger brother, we're like the younger brother at the moment of coming home when the father runs out and puts his arms around us. The reality is that we are totally helpless. We're a coin that's just been back in a back corner of the room collecting dust and dirt and it's old and dinged up or a sheep that's totally helpless and harmed and can do nothing to get its way back to the flock, we're like the younger brother laying in the mud next to the pigs, hoping for a pot of some of their food, and Jesus pursues us in the midst of that, despite all of our sin. And he not only pursues us, he loves us. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a passage that tells us that Jesus had been going around from town to town and village to village, and he's been teaching, and he's been healing people and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And it says he looks out over the crowd and he has compassion on them. He sees that they are distressed and rejected, like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion for us. He not only knows the depth of our sin and is able to sympathize with our temptation, he not only pursues us in our sin and loves us despite our sin, he also loves us too much to let us just kind of wallow in our sin. He sanctifies us. He wants to sanctify us through and out of our sin. We have this cultural image of Jesus whereby with all of our sin and all of our baggage, we're able to come to Jesus and he will save us. And that is true. But then the cultural image is that then we can just stay there and he accepts us as we are for the rest of eternity. He accepts you as you are in the fact that you're broken and sinful, but he's too loving to just let you remain in your sin. He deposits the Holy Spirit in those who receive His grace by faith, and that Holy Spirit convicts and challenges and empowers us to walk through our sin, to be sanctified into His image. And last, Jesus ultimately gave Himself for our sin. Hanging on the cross, He looks at the thief next to Him and He says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's an offer for all people that by grace, 
through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, you can be ushered back in to eternal perfect relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what it looks like for Jesus to be the friend of sinners. Before we go on, I would be incredibly remiss to not say, if you don't know Jesus Christ as that kind of friend, today can be the day. A friend who knows the most broken parts of your life, who can sympathize with the temptations that have led you into that place. A friend who is pursuing you in the midst of your sin and your brokenness and loves you despite it. A friend who wants to sanctify and empower you to move out of that sin and who ultimately gave himself on the cross for you. You can have that kind of friendship in your life and be brought back into eternal relationship with the Lord. If you've not ever done that, and you're feeling a conviction about sin and the reality of your need for a Savior, I want to invite you when the service is over to find one of our staff members. We would love to talk to you, pray with you, set up a time to grab lunch or to grab coffee or some other warm beverage and, or cold because it's summer, and talk about what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ. The rest of the message, while important, pales in significance to getting that relationship right. So what does it look like for us to be fellow friends of sinners? If that's the model, how is it that we engage in friendship with one another in a way that is gospel-centered, that holds the image of Christ before us and says, I want to be that kind of friend? Well, it means we need to foster vulnerability. Proverbs 28.13 says, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. The one who hides, who conceals himself, will not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces his sin will find mercy. Wise friendship requires letting our guard down. It means that a a veneer of perfection or the illusion of having all of our stuff together might work on our social media profiles or on the internet, but it won't work if you're looking for true friendship. There have to be people that you're willing to be vulnerable with to open up to the deepest hurts and the darkest corners of your heart and to say, this is who I am. Men, we are awful at this. I mean awful. We would rather have conversations about how the third string right tackle for the Chiefs is doing at training camp than we would about anything meaningful. And then to convince ourselves that we've made some sort of genuine connection there. And yet... Statistics would show from like all sectors of society that men in today's day and age feel more isolated and more disconnected than almost any other grouping of people. And we wonder why that's the case. Because we've never actually opened ourselves up and said, this is who I am and I want you to know me. I'm willing to share with you all the broken places of my heart so that we can actually enter into friendship. It's important to note, you don't have to do that sort of soul-bearing with everyone, but there needs to be someone or some small group of people where we have deep friendships in which we stop hiding. There's no hiding from the searching eyes of Jesus who knows the depth of our sin, and that means that we need to allow ourselves to be open with our friends and to draw them in to those places in our lives. But it also means that we need to foster empathy. When someone's willing to be vulnerable and kind of 
put everything out there, if you will. There's got to be empathy in the reception of that. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. To revisit the words of C.S. Lewis, he says, friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. That is empathy. To be able to look at another person and identify with them. It requires that we're willing to both let ourselves be seen and that we open up our eyes enough to see others. Proverbs tells us that wise friendships mean being present in the most difficult of times and in the most challenging of circumstances. That's core to what friendship is. To having someone who's willing to be vulnerable and then entering in with them and saying, me too, I understand. I can identify with that. That's at the very heart of who Jesus was for us and it needs to be at the heart of who we are as friends. In the same way that Jesus pursues us in our sin, we need to foster consistency in our relationships. A friend loves at all times. That's Proverbs 17, 17 again. And this becomes more and more difficult for us as we get older. When we're young, friendship is easy because there's a lot of free time. You've got summers off. You know, think about when you were in college and you thought you were really busy. You're like, I went to class for two hours today. How am I supposed to be expected to maintain this pace of life? Right? The problem is that, or it's not a problem, in college, when you think about the busyness, you're cramming your life full of relational experiences. That's why some people look back on college and those are some of their best friends. There was an immense amount of time to pursue relationship with one another. It's fantastic. And then you graduate and you get a job and you find out what actual busyness is like. And then maybe you get married and you find out what hectic busyness is like. And then you maybe have kids and you find out what chaos is like. And it gets harder to pursue genuine, vulnerable, empathetic, consistent relationship. It's harder to pick up the phone and make the phone call and say, let's get together. You're trying to figure out where you're going to find that time. But wise friendship means that we pursue one another in relationship. It might mean that you need to be creative. It might require getting up earlier, finding opportunities to be with one another. But wise friendship stays involved at all times. We're vulnerable, empathetic, we're consistent in our pursuit of one another, but we also need to foster humility. The ability to love despite another person's sin. Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but whoever gossips about it separates friends. All human relationships create tension at some point. You get two broken people into any sort of relationship and there's bound to be friction somewhere. And when someone else's sin smashes into your life, there are two options. You can either allow that to puff you up in pride and think to yourself, I would never be like that. Or you can humble yourself and allow the presence of sin in that person's life remind you of the fact that, yes, you would actually do that. You probably have, and you're more than capable of doing it again. Jonathan Edwards, when he was a teenager, he sat down and he wrote a list of resolutions for his life. And one of them states, resolved to allow the beholding of sin in the life of another to not puff me up in my own pride, thinking that I am somehow above it, but instead to remind me that I'm the vilest of all sinners, capable of the same. 
Wise friendship bears with the brokenness of another person humbly and patiently. It sees the sin of another person and doesn't look down on it. Wise friendship loves despite the flaws and quirks, the holdups and hangups of the other person. Let me balance this, though. Because on the flip side, wisdom demands some limits here. If you have a friend and it seems like they just take and take and take and take from their relationship, it might be time to have a difficult conversation. You might need to put some, some boundaries in that friendship. Wise friendship doesn't mean that in the name of humility and love, you let yourself get walked on. But it does mean that in the name of humility and love, you bear with one another patiently, understanding that we all still have flesh that oftentimes rises up within us. Wise friendship also fosters accountability. In the same way that Jesus wants to sanctify us out of our sin, our friendships ought to be conducive to our holiness. Ray Ortland says it this way, we need friends who will refine us, not flatter us. That means we must be a friend who's willing to refine those around us. Proverbs is full of statements on this topic. I'll just give you a couple. Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. That's Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, and so one person sharpens another. It's not loving to allow our friends to flounder in their sin. It's not. We might think it's easier. It might feel safer. But that's not the image of Jesus. Wise friendship involves truthful, gentle, honest, Christ-like confrontation when sin shows itself. Wise friendship says in those moments, I'm not walking away from you here, but I'm also not letting you stay here. It's not loving to see the sin in someone else's life and the way it's wreaking havoc or has the potential to wreak havoc and then to sit back in silence. Let me kind of build this out a little bit. In your life, you may be conducting friendships in a way that makes it impossible for someone to confront the sin that's in your life. Maybe you shut it down, you become immediately defensive, you become self-justifying. And so any attempt at actually allowing the Lord to use the people around us in our lives to sanctify us gets immediately shut down. On the other side, you may have a friend that you know and you can see is walking in just open, habitual sin and it is causing chaos in their lives. And you've sat back completely silent. You're not serving that friend. You're not loving that friend in the name of tolerance or in the name of not being judgmental. That's not the model of Jesus. One of the things I love a lot about the the group of four or five men that are closest to me is that I know from experience that they're willing to say in the moment sometimes, Tim, we should probably talk about the way you just handled that with your wife. Or we should probably have a conversation about fill in the blank thing that I see in your life. And it hurts and it's awkward and no one has a friend say that to them and says, oh, great, let's sit down right now and like, 
have this out. Please tell me all of my flaws. That's not how it works. It's painful. And everything inside of you rises up to your own defense. And yet we've got to foster humility. We've got to be willing to be vulnerable, to know that they're going to be empathetic, that they're going to pursue us nonetheless, and to be willing to listen to that. One other thing I love about my group of friends is that I know that they're never going to create a situation whereby sin is going to be either like conducive in that situation or fostered in that situation. My friends are pursuing the Lord. They're being sanctified. They're not creating situations where I have to think to myself, should we or should we not be doing this? Those are the kinds of friends we're looking for. That's wise friendship. That's friendship for the sake of holiness. Last but not least, we must foster accountability. Proverbs 27.10 says, don't abandon your friend or your father's friend. Better a neighbor, a re'ah, companion, friend, fellow, nearby than a brother far away. At the end of it all, we see that Jesus made himself available to humanity. On the cross, he said, here I am by grace available to you as the friend of sinners and wise friendship does the same. It doesn't close ourselves off. It doesn't make ourselves unavailable. Instead, it opens ourselves up to one of God's great graces. That's the presence of godly friends in our lives. Wise friendship, vulnerable, empathetic, consistent, humble, accountable, available. To go back to Proverbs 18.24 and wrap this up, one with many companions may be harmed. You might be harmed because they're not empathetic, because they're inconsistent, because they're prideful, because they refuse to be held accountable, because they're unavailable. But there's a friend who stays closer than a brother. There is one who loves, who stays closer than a brother. In Jesus, we have a friend who truly sticks closer than a brother. And by following his model, we can be that kind of friend to those around us. First and foremost, we must know the friend of sinners. And if you don't know him, I want to invite you to step into that relationship today. And then we can look to the friend of sinners and know what true friendship looks like. We can express gratitude to the friend of sinners and truly appreciate what he's done on our behalf. And by looking at him, we can be wise in our friendships, modeling them after the way he has befriended us. We're going to take communion this morning as an opportunity to look to the friend of sinners in gratitude. But scripture tells us that before we come and we take this meal, we are to do so Uh, by being reflective. We're to examine ourselves. And so if you're someone who's volunteered to pass this out, if you would come and grab these trays and begin distributing those among our congregation, we're going to take this mostly uh, in silence here, which I know is awkward. But I want to actually provide space for you to examine yourself and to do so through the lens of friendship. As we look to Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners... How does it shed light on how we're conducting our friendships? Are we hiding and lying to our friendships or to our friends rather than being vulnerable? Rather than being empathetic, are we closed off and cold, calloused toward our friends in their time of need and brokenness?
Are we inconsistent? Are we prideful instead of humble? Rather than fostering accountability, are we instead being complicit in the sin of our friends or unapproachable in our own sin? Are we available? As this is passed out, I'm just going to let some silence rule here so that we can be before the Lord, offer repentance where we need, to confess where we need, and to express gratitude to Jesus, the friend of sinners.